And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation that I'm hoping helps your business grow. Speaking of your business growing, if it grows, 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 you might run into an opportunity where it's time for you to sell, sell, sell. And for so many founders, that is the promised land. That's what so many people are aiming for. But that process is full of pitfalls and things that'll trip you up and stress and stuff that'll make you old, fat, and bald really, really fast. We're going to talk about all of that on today's show, which is powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult, and Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Go to Fullscale.io to learn more. There's a link in the show notes that'll help you get there. And if you're not aware, that's my company, and we love talking to Startup Hustle listeners. So reach out. With me today, I've got Bill Snow, and Bill is an investment banker and the author of Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies, which sounds about on par with what we need to hear about today. So straight out of Chicago, Illinois, Bill, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. You know, let's let's get our conversation uh, uh, popping today with, uh, oh, and by the way, if you want to learn more about Bill, go to BillSnow.com, and there's a link for that in the show notes. And Bill, you know, why everyone scrolls down and clicks that link and learns more about you from your website, why don't you give us a little background in your backstory? Sure. So I've been doing this thing called middle market investment banking for close to 20 years now. We do nothing with investments. We're not a bank. So of course, we call ourselves investment bankers. So what does that mean? We sell companies or we help other companies make acquisitions. Before that, I had a series of jobs, sales and worked for a, a retailer where I was in the field running stores and, and helping acquire mom and pop changes back in the 90s, back in the dark ages. And I had been interested in startup world. Where do ideas come from? What, what is the genesis of a business? And so I started getting into uh, trying to get into startup companies. So I worked for friends and family funded, angel funded, venture capital funded companies, worked for a, a company that was an intermediary between venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. And you end up getting a lot of business experience and knowledge and so forth, banging your head against the wall. A friend of mine, a former colleague from the venture capital days, segued over to a middle market investment banking firm, and they were looking to add somebody. I very wisely turned down that job four or five times until the owner found me in a moment of weakness. And I said, okay, fine, I'll go be an investment banker. It was a little bit of a change for me, but it, it's worked out really well, and I'm, I'm very pleased with what I'm doing. So, well, thank you for that that recap there. Now, when we talk about like how to sell a company, um, this can occur. And I mean, this is this is a very, very broad topic. This is yes. almost like asking me, how do you build software? 
you know, because you you say, oh, wow, what route do we take? Now, first yeah. off, businesses exist on many different levels and many different sizes, as small as one employee and a sole proprietor level. Um, those aren't typically the kinds of companies that I would imagine you and investment bankers deal with ever. Um, but some companies are small and lean when it comes to a headcount, but big and bold when it comes to results. So sure, sure. when we talk about like how to sell a company, I think let's, let's like, there's going to be some real obvious answers in here, but who buys companies from other people? And now I think that, uh, and I'll just go ahead and put this out there. Sometimes the person buying the company is one of the partners, Sure. And maybe buying it out sure. from another partner sure. that either want, just wants to sell or wants to do something different or maybe isn't as passionate about it. Uh, that's typically not what uh, investment bankers get involved in. But it could be at some point if the company's big enough, there could be some financial partners in there. But who are some other entities that will buy companies from entrepreneurs of all shapes and sizes. Sure, sure. So middle market or lower middle markets, we define, let me just give you a couple of terms and we'll talk about the, the type of buyers. So when we talk about size of company, and this is for your founders, people building a business, they should think along this way. Because a lot of times people always talk about headcount, which is important. We look at revenue, we look at right. earnings, specifically EBITDA. Hopefully people know what EBITDA is. You can, you can look it up or I can explain. Uh, we like to work with companies. I used to say at least 10 million in revenue. Now with things changing in the market, smaller deals are a little more difficult. I, I prefer to see at least roughly 20 million in revenue. We used to want at least a million in EBITDA. Those deals are, are increasingly difficult. So I want to see at least $2 million in EBITDA. So these are sizable companies, companies that have some meat on the bone to, to use a silly euphemism. Um, the, the buyers range from other companies. Those are called strategic companies private equity, lots of private equity firms out there looking to make acquisitions. Sometimes they're looking for a platform. So a company that will be the base that they build off of, they'll invest, they'll make other acquisitions to grow that and sell it to, to someone else. They'll look for add-ons as well. So they already have a platform. If you're selling a company, they'll say, yeah, this would be a great add-on. It opens up new products or open up new geographies for us or opens up new uh, sales uh, uh, corporate companies or, or executive level that we're not dealing with right now. So there could be a, a slew of reasons why a company will want to make an acquisition. So really, and it depends first and foremost on the owner of that business. What are they looking to accomplish? Now you use the term. I like to, I like to stop and define things, sure. even if it feels redundant to people that are more experienced, but EBITDA earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization. I believe that's the, that is absolutely correct. And what that is, folks, is you'll you will definitely run into this this if you don't know what your EBITDA is, figure it out because there are certain things that acquiring parties are going to look at that are going to give a, a, a truer ballast of the company's health, its growth potential, its profitability, maybe a lot of its flaws too. Like you could have a company that has a high revenue and a microscopic, if not even Correct. non-existent EBITDA. Correct. Uh, revenue doesn't mean shit at that point if you're not making money. Um, now, for so many of us in the startup world that have been around for the last 15 years, especially, um, you see valuations sometimes exploding and they feel hard to describe like why they make any sense. You get companies that are worth a billion dollars that haven't made any money. 
but have some kind of leverageable ability to fix that in a big way down the road. So yeah, EBITDA is a big thing just to even know your numbers. And, uh, you know, that's, that's often going to be multiplied times something. Now with tech businesses, uh, you, you often catch a revenue, a, a, a multiple of the revenue. Um, they're a little different, but yeah, headcount is not a great, uh, is not a great health measure of anything other than the size of your company sure. as sure. far as like yeah. the people that work at it. So, yeah. Yeah. um, you, you mentioned a few things. So now, now, you know, obviously we're looking at how to sell your company, understanding your EBITDA would be a good thing. I think you got to understand your business as a whole. If you want to sell your company, you have to be prepared to have the adequate things that and that someone wants that want. If you, okay, if you wanted to go buy a home, you got to get a home inspection. You got to get a loan approval. You got to get like a whole lot of stuff because there are safeguards out there that oh want to prevent you from doing dumb stuff. Um, businesses have those same things. You're talking about years of of profit and and loss statements, just general budgets, like where you're going, who you're doing business with. What are a couple other things that someone wants to sell a company needs to make sure that they have before they enter the arena? Yeah, great question. Make sure that the first thing is make sure that you're replaceable. That's a difficult thing for an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. somebody running the business. So you think about it. Would you want to buy a company where one person is in charge of everything, running the sales and design and development and overseeing HR and accounting functions. And if you take that person away, the whole thing falls apart. What would you pay for that company? So owner, make yourself expendable. That's the first thing. And then beyond that, uh, size, growth, as you've said, it's just not the EBITDA, it's the EBITDA as a margin, as a percent of the total revenue. Uh, The higher, the better, at least 10% is good when they get below 10% EBITDA margins. Not impossible, but that becomes a little more difficult and valuations will come down. Uh, If a company's big enough, I always recommend make sure you have a third-party accountant to prepare the statements, reviews, or audits are ideal, especially if you have inventory. I know your startup techie people are probably scratching their head wondering what is inventory. Uh, (laughs) uh, Inventory, raw materials, uh, WIP, that's called work in process. Uh, that is the raw materials that get turned into a product in a manufacturing firm or distribution company will have a lot of inventories are looking to sell it. So you want to have an audit or a review. Why, why is that important? Because the accountants will come in, they will count the inventory at the beginning of the year and the end of the year. You'll be able to calculate exactly what your cost of goods sold is going to be. That's important because that ties right into the profitability of the business. So you want to have at least two years of audits or reviews. This way you get an unqualified opinion. If it's a qualified opinion, the reviewers or the auditors just looked at the inventory at the end of the year. They're taking the business owner's word of mouth, uh, take, taking their word for it, that the inventory level that they said at January 1st was actually true. A quality of earnings report is another thing that we're, we're seeing that will help quantify ad backs because it's just not EBITDA these days. It's adjustments to EBITDA that quite yes. often and that's, that's expenses that go away, supposedly will go away with the new owner. Having a quality of earnings report, that's another report prepared by accountants, will help quantify those add backs to EBITDA. Yeah, and there are, there are definitely adjustments to EBITDA that are one-time costs, um, little things that, um, you know, like you mentioned, like I want to talk about the, the key man or woman, uh, key person at a business. Now, look, as an entrepreneur, I think one of your goals should be to build something bigger than you. Like start with that on a generalist basis. Um, and I've gone through this because, you know, my company full scale, we had 100 employees after a year. 
And, you know, five years later, up to 325 and just going and going and going. And we have been very specific as we've, you kind of have to do this segment by segment, trying to install someone to, to do this enhanced stuff, like all at the same time is kind of like the idea that nine women don't make a baby in a month. You got to kind of gradually get through this. It's very easy as an entrepreneur or a founder to unintentionally make yourself the conduit for yeah. too many things Absolutely. and that, try to get yourself out of the way. I got to tell you what, Bill, I mean, I've spent realistic, I've spent years doing that at full scale. Yeah. Sure. You know, when sure. Bruce quickly, you know, here you are, if you're, if you're a multifunctional person and like, I don't know, man, I'm an A plus generalist. Like I had to kind of start there, but you got to remove yourself from a lot of these processes as you get bigger. Cause one, all you can do is all you can do. But then also that key man thing, I often refer to this as the bus rule as well. Meaning if that person got hit by a bus, how screwed are you tomorrow? Sure. And that's a real yeah. thing. That's a real thing. And that can exist in different departments too. Like if you have one person that just has way too much, like you got to have, you got to show and demonstrate that you met, you mentioned that replaceability if needed, meaning your company shouldn't crumble and fall with one person leaving. Um, it can be a pretty bad thing. So, yeah, yeah. It, 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 no, you're completely right. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you're completely no, right. You're, no, it, I mean, it, yeah, please yeah, expand. Yeah, and, and and the check I mentioned this before is instead of just thinking about the company that you're selling or what you think you can get for it, flip it around and think about the situation. Would you want to buy that same company, uh, somebody who is integral for almost every aspect of the business? And what would you pay? Probably not a lot. So you have to, if you really want to maximize what you get in terms of a sale, think about what the other party is going to get. And would you take that deal that you want to get? Yeah. And then, you know, one of the things too, and let's, let's just like have some real talk about this for a minute, Bill, because, you know, and I, and I don't want to offend my peers and friends when I say this, but as startup founders, we often overvalue what we got. No, really? I've never seen yeah, that. Yeah. No, it's the truth, man. It happens. Crazy talk. Yeah. Crazy talk. So, um, I remember when I was a kid and I, you know, this is back in the early eighties and I used to collect baseball cards and I'd go show my dad, like the Mark McGuire rookie card and be like, dad, this is worth 10 bucks. And he'd say, do you have someone that'll give you $10 for uh -huh. right now? Yeah. No, but the baseball card store said they give you, they give me five. And he'd say, well, then that thing's only worth five bucks. <laughs> And, yeah. and that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. So when it comes to selling your company, and I've had a lot of discussions with friends and peers like this, I always say one thing. I say, you know, it's really hard to have an auction when you only have one bidder. Correct. And I think that as you're preparing for uh, to, to go out and look at this stuff. So my business partner at Full Scale, Matt Watson, who's gone through a couple acquisitions, and he's talked about this a lot on the show. So his first company, Vent Solutions, which in 2012 sold for 150 million bucks, they did pretty well there. They went out just looking for financing. They just want they were thinking about raising a funding round and ended up it ended up because they talked to several people or several interested entities. A, a bit of a bidding war started. And, uh, you know, they had this kind of joke at one point where they'd wake up and they'd just say every day, like, cause every day the price went up a little bit, yeah, now, yeah, you sure. know, and, and that, I think that that uh, says a lot for someone at the company that says you've done a good job because multiple people are interested, but you know, if you really want to get the best price on something, you need to ask more than one buyer. 
Um, unless you are absolutely positive that you're at a number that you think is it and someone nails that, I would still go out and try to find a, another offer. Just absolutely. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's now could you be talking about tens of millions of dollars that come in on that first offer? Yeah, possibly. And that's like a, a very weird reality. Um, I've had offers for my company that were uh, eight digits. And, you know, like you're going to go that it's a it's a weird, surreal feeling. But we turned them down. Why? Way too low. Yeah. Way too go. low. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Re- remember that the people that are out there that might buy your company, they're in the business of getting the best deal for themselves, too. So just, you know, try to make an informed decision in that regard. I yeah, absolutely right. I, I always tell people if I get hired to sell a company, I am representing you. I don't represent the no. other side. I mean, we want to be fair. We want to be honest. I mean, we're not looking to deceive, of course. But our job is to get the best deal for our side. We, our job is not to negotiate for them. Again, you want to be fair, reasonable. You don't want to hide anything. You don't want to be deceptive or anything like that. But their job is to put together the best deal for them. And, and you're right. When you have one buyer, there's kind of an overused term. When you have one buyer, you have no buyers. Because yeah. you don't have a data point. Maybe, you know, maybe it is a really good offer. Maybe you got a good sense of what the business is worth. And, and more than that, maybe you're thinking, okay, what do I need? What am I looking to accomplish? And this offer allows me, look, maybe I'm looking to retire. I need a certain number. I sell the company. I am able to fill in that that bucket with my financial planning. And, and maybe that's enough to get the deal done. Uh, I like getting multiple offers. That gives you more data points as well. Uh, the comp- the competition or the semblance of competition is is a great um, influencer in valuation, of course. I think people make a mistake when they think about the things that we do, investment bankers. Again, we do nothing with investments. We're not a bank. We're advisors. We, we sell companies that we somehow, I call it magic words, right? So I'm going to buy something from you and I'll, I'll, uh, uh, I'll bid uh, $10 and, and you don't like it, but you've got magic words and you whisper those magic words and I come back and offer 15 that's not going to happen. Nobody has magic words. Something is worth what somebody else will pay. And of course, what the, the first party will accept. Tenor of the times uh, is important. Motivated seller can put the uh, put downward pressure on price. Uh, a motivated buyer, a buyer that really needs to make the acquisition, if it's a strategic imperative to do the deal, guess what? They're going to come up probably with a very strong bid as well. Uh, the skill of the investment banker is important, but the strength of the underlying asset is the biggest determinant of the value of a company. So, and I want to get into some of the things that help and hurt that. Before we do, I want to remind everyone that finding expert software developers does not have to be difficult, especially when you go to fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. You can use Fullscale's platform to define your technical needs and see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. Go to fullscale.io to learn more. There's a link for that in the show notes. While you're down there, click the link to go to billsnow.com. That's who I'm having this conversation with today, in case you, you didn't remember that. and you, <laughs> Bill's got a lot of information uh, and experience, and he's also the author of Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies, which might be something all of us should read at some point, because I got to tell you, I mean, you know, Bill, I'm a, I'm a pretty seasoned dude at this point. I'm almost 50 years old. I'm still a couple years away from that, so not quite 50, but Getting there, I've I've done I've done a lot of, done a lot of stuff, and I've been involved in a lot of conversations, and a lot of things, and a lot of stuff. I have not sold a company in a big exit 
um, been down the rabbit hole. And I got to tell you, like, it's a different world. Like it is, it is not, it is not the same as being a founder, starting a company, being an entrepreneur. It's a different, it's a different everything. There's different language. There's different terms. There's different setups. There's all these things that can flex it up and flex it down. You got to be careful because there's some things you could get yourself into if you don't really realize what you're doing, that could be pretty expensive, including the valuation of your company. So what are some of the things, you know, we, we've always heard this stuff as founders, oh, this is going to increase your value, this might not. Like, what are, the, what are the real things that in 2023 are affecting valuations up or down? Yeah. The first thing, well, in the middle market companies, so companies with this thing called inventory that, that have assets, uh, again, you, you might not be familiar with it. I, I can explain offline. Uh, that's that's a different world than, than the tech world. As, as you well know, the venture capitalists are looking for things that, that scale very quickly. You know, the next Google or Apple or Microsoft or things like that. Um, so the, the things that uh, can can impact valuation in terms of middle market company, let's talk about that growth, uh, both in terms of the top line, both in terms of that fabulous acronym EBITDA. You want to look at the percentage of that. You want to make sure that you don't have any concentrations. What does that mean? That you're doing, you know, 50% of your business with one customer. That one customer fires you. There goes 50% of your business. That's a risk for anybody. Uh, you want to make sure that you're replaceable, that you've got a team, a management team. Who's going to run the business after the, the new owner comes in place? So you want to make sure you've got all those systems in place and the, the people in place. Uh, communication is a big thing. So if you're planning to retire and the new owner is going to either need to be the new president or hire a president, you want to communicate that as well. So those are some of the things that will impact the valuation. One, a mistake that a lot of people make is they always look at the market. Everybody wants to be the smartest guy or gal in the room and time the market, right? I, I want to buy at the absolute lowest and sell at the absolute highest. And of course, who wouldn't want to do that? But in M&A, especially in the middle market, the world that I play in, M&A is microeconomic, okay? The macro, yeah, that can have an impact, sure, absolutely. But the check there is a great company, growing, strong profits, diversified customer base, really good management team that's going to stay, just a great company, but the economy is on the rocks. That great company is still going to trade and probably get a really good price. The inverse is a booming economy. Everybody's making money. Everything is going great, but the company is struggling. The revenue is dropping, Profits are dropping. Maybe it's losing money. Bad company, good economy is going to struggle to find a buyer or certainly get bids that might be of interest to the seller. Microeconomics. So focus on the company. Control what you can control. And that is what well, let's flip that to one more, Bill. Yeah, sure. Because I don't think you hit bad economy, good company. Yeah. Yeah. Did I miss that? Uh, well, I, I just mentioned that. Because that's um, almost yeah. what's going on now in some regards. There's yeah. a lot of struggles in a lot of sectors. VC is slowed down. Um, but with that, in my opinion, that means th- there's almost a Darwinistic nature to that in sure. some regards. Sure. And if you can, if you can, sh- if your company and your sales and your revenue and your growth show a level of survivability, and I think we're in a good little like, um, you know, three to five year pocket of that. Cause how did you do during COVID? Like some businesses just folded yeah, and, yeah. you know, and, and, and you realize a lot of weaknesses that exist, sure. like all these businesses that had a week of cash on hand or access to it. And now boom, gone, yeah, you yeah. know, like that's not, that's not a stable foundation. 
I'll give you an example. Like when COVID hit, our, our revenue dropped by 30% in 60 days. And then we rose up even higher, like in, over the next 90 days, because, you know, there are certain, uh, okay, it, it was funny, I, up, until the, up until the pandemic, people always used haircuts as a recession proof example, like, because people would get haircuts in good economies or bad economies, but when then suddenly you couldn't go to the haircut place. Um, so that kind of changed it. But no, I think if you show a level of survivability yeah. and resilience and, and all of that, there's a lot to be said about that in this current stage. Because if you shrug off something like a global pandemic and find a way to grow, or like in our case, it's so we, you know, we deal with helping people find offshore development talent. Uh, and they are our employees in the Philippines, like the whole the workplace dynamic changed and where there was a bit of a hybrid or offshore element to things. The, the work from home thing um, really, especially in tech, even though it's kind of reversing for a lot of companies, it, it's still like it, it created a favorable dynamic for some companies. Sure. So, sure. you know, look at, you know, while timing the market is impossible, um, there are there are market factors in the timeline that I think really could like say a lot for you. Um, sure, sure. Well, let's, yeah, so. well, let's 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 talk about uh, about what happened in the pandemic. And for those couple months there, yeah, a lot of businesses dipped. There was a lot of uncertainty. We were forced. Everybody was forced to shut down, which I think yeah. is a bad mistake. Uh, that's a whole other issue. But I, I have a buy side client. I've had them for years. A great company, and I've seen this elsewhere where companies are making allowances. Now we're a few years past, so it, you don't have to look at that as much, but. I remember the president of, of my client telling me, because we were looking at making an acquisition a few years ago, and, and he said, you know, if they had uh, a slow couple months in the spring of 20, we can work with that. We can adjust that because everybody had to deal with that. Yeah. So, And about the same time, I got a coffee mug from a private equity firm, and it had the new acronym, EBITDAC. It added a C, so earnings before interest tax, depreciation, amortization, and coronavirus. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, they are willing to, as long as the business came back. So in your situation, yeah, you had a couple months where you had a, a very steep drop, but things looked like they, they came back. And so people, let's say you were looking to do a process, you know, a couple of years ago, people would, would smooth that out and say, okay, it was a systemic shock to the system. Everybody had to deal with it. And it looks like things have come back, maybe even stronger as a result. Um, you know, but the, the bad economy, you, you touched on that. Uh, there's, there's plenty of companies, well, M&A. That's another mistake that people make. Everybody always asks me, how's your deal flow? And, and that that's a term that drives me nuts because it sounds like you have a wound. You know, I got a deal on my leg and it's flowing. Can give me somebody give me some gauze to cover this thing up? Deal flow, eh, that doesn't mean anything. You've got buyers and you've got sellers. In the middle market, private equity firms, strategic, the demand from the buyers is always very high. Okay, maybe some drop out. Maybe they're struggling. They don't want to buy companies. But the demand, most companies, almost all, are acquisitive. They want to make acquisitions. The challenge is on the other side, the supply, the sellers, bringing good companies to market. Uh, certainly the pandemic chased out, flushed out some bad companies. Well, bad companies going to struggle uh, to make a sale in a good economy or bad. Uh, the challenge is always bringing enough sellers to market. And so your, your listeners who might be more in the startup world, dealing with venture capital, venture capital is fending off all the people tossing books over the transom, give me money, give me money, give me money. An opposite thing happens in the middle market, in the private equity world. 
there the private equity firms are calling every day, sending emails, let's talk, let's get together. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? So in that regard, the buyers have become sellers in the middle market. They are selling a commodity, money. Money is the same, maybe the terms and the amount change, of course, but it's money. And the very limited resource that's difficult to find both as an investment banker and as an acquirer is a good company, a well-run company and an owner with reasonable expectations. If you have a good company and you have reasonable expectations, you have a really good chance of getting a really good deal if you want to sell your company. Let's talk about those expectations. And I think that that's something that a lot of founder listeners or equity bearing listeners uh, will find interesting because, you know, most of the time when your company, well, let's just say someone bought my company today, um, the chances that I'm going to still work there tomorrow are almost 100%. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, uh, there's you, you with, and, and this is, I think this can affect your valuation a lot. Cause if I'm like, yeah, I want to sell, but I'm not coming to work the day after that yeah. deal closes, yeah. that's, that's going to detract from your value. That's going to, that creates stability issues. There's that, just that, that general handover nature. You mentioned like, would you want, okay. So if you told me you wanted to buy my Rolex from me and I just delivered you a box full of parts that wouldn't be a very good transaction, yeah. you yeah. know, and, yeah. and you got to figure out how to put it together, how to deal with it. And there's a lot of little nuances. First off, I think that's irresponsible for any business owner to do anyway. It tells me you don't care about the people that you have there at the company because yeah. they're dealing with new leadership. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stress and anxiety that goes on when it comes to employees and the transitional nature. Like, do I still have a job? Am I redundant? Who's my boss? Do things change? Where's my paycheck come from? You know, like all of it. And, and that's part of what you, and they call that often just, just referred to as an earnout. And the earnout though can be a really lucrative thing if done well, and it can be a financially disastrous thing if set up poorly. What, what, what can you, what, what advice can you offer about the earnout process or that transition period? What do those deals usually look like? What can, yeah. what can make them great and what can make them suck? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question. That, that's another thing that, that people sometimes misunderstand. They think they're selling the business. I liken it to selling the old sofa in your basement right? You put an ad online or wherever and hundred bucks your best offer. And a guy shows up with a pickup truck and gives you 50 bucks. And you say, okay, good enough. I want this out. You get the money. The sofa's gone. That's an easy transaction. A company is a lot more difficult, a lot more risk, a lot more moving parts, as you've said. So if the owner is integral or viewed as integral and you need to have some sort of transition, the buyer is probably going to want to do something. Okay. I want to have you for a year. I'll put you on a a contract, I'll pay you this, uh, maybe have a consulting a contract. So for another six months, a year, whatever. So I can call you up if there's some questions. Um, you, they, they might ask the owner to roll some equity. So in other words, the, the buyer is probably going to set up a new entity and fold all the assets if it's an asset deal into the new entity. And that opens up some opportunities. Okay, well, we'll buy 80% of the company. We want you to hold on to some stock and we're going to sell it in four or five years. So that gives an incentive to the business owner, the seller, to make sure that the, the transition is orderly and be helpful. You might see an earnout, as you've said. The earnout, the, the traditional earnout was, 
I'm going to buy your company and you tell me I'm going to have five million in earnings. And I say, I'm, I'm seeing four. We're in late July. Uh, let's get the deal done based on a, a four as the valuation. And you prove it out through the end of the year. And then we'll true up what I'm paying you. You'll earn this out. So if you hit that five million, OK, we'll apply whatever formula. I've already paid you some of it. Here's a little bit more to make the valuation as if it was five million. If you only come up with four million, I'm not going to pay you more. If you come up with four point two, I pay you a little bit more. That's traditionally what an earnout was. Earnout has become, sadly, something that is viewed as another component of a sale, right? The, the proceeds of a sale. You've got cash at close, maybe a seller note, and, and now you have this earnout component. Sometimes they go for multiple years. Sometimes it's a necessary evil. You have to deal with it. I want to minimize that as much as possible as much as possible, have it based on something easy to measure, top line revenue. Uh, the challenge is if it's some sort of measure of earnings, and quite often that's what it is, there's going to be a debate uh, and discussion on, well, what's going to happen with the earnings? Okay, I'm going to agree to an earnout based on future earnings. Well, how do I know you're not going, going to start applying overhead to the business yeah. or start hiring that's, a bunch yeah, of people? Yeah. You know, so there you have to have those discussions and make sure that that it's comfortable. So it's reasonable, especially if a if a transition is in, is needed, that the that the buyer has some sort of protection that the seller is just not going to skip. And if they do skip and they don't show up, they don't help. Well, the seller is hurting themselves because a lot of money might be still tied up in the in the company. Yeah, and you got to be careful in those regards because you know with this this keyword we use with EBITDA, if someone buys your company and they are immediately going to hit the gas on growth, EBITDA is always going to dip during yeah. that because yeah. you're talking about usually like you could say, hey, we're going to triple the size of our sales team. That means you're going to take on salaries, you're going to have to train people, uh, they got to get up to speed, and a lot of that, and the, and and the the trailing. The trailing effects of that, if done poorly, is you just have a lot more expense and you yeah. lowered your profitability significantly. Um, those also might not be decisions that you get to make anymore as the former owner or CEO. You know, you don't. You it, it, just just my my caveat to everyone is be careful what you agree to on the earnout because if you don't have a control, any control, and in the calculation of that stuff in the end, meaning like the new acquirer could, I don't know, maybe, maybe they don't do a good job, yeah, you yeah. know? So just, just be careful with that. Right. And then, yeah. and then like you mentioned that let why don't you own a little bit of the shares? Um, well, be careful with that too, because if the, if the goal at signing is to just take what you've got, mush it together with some other things, sell it in three or four years for an expanded price. If that for some reason doesn't happen and you get into a very lengthy window of that, you may very much have a very True. illiquid thing. True. And if you're counting on that for some reason and that, that changes or the, I don't know, maybe it flops. I, I used to work for a company that, um, that before I'd started my own that was owned by a private equity company that put six different small chains of stores together into one hub and spoke kind of model. And they had something happen and got a massive lawsuit uh, judgment against them. And they just shut the company down. Yeah. Yeah. Afterward, they were just yeah. like, you know what? It's cheaper for us to just shut this down. This yep. is over. Now, if you were a shareholder in that situation, waiting for that next liquidity event, you got nothing. And the same thing goes with some of those metrics and, yeah. and 
and other things, just, just think it out and, you know, try to be on the same page with people or see what's going on. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I agree. And again, it goes back to what the seller wants to accomplish. So if you want to create, if you want to retire or semi-retire, create some liquidity, but you have a longer runway and you're okay with holding some paper, you know, if you get a note, uh, if, if part of the proceeds is going to be, okay, well, we'll pay, I'm just throwing numbers out. We'll pay $10 million and we want you to take a $2 million note. We'll call it a $12 million deal and we'll pay you 7% on that $2 million. You got to put that money somewhere. Maybe that's not a bad deal, at least for a few years to keep some of that money in a company that you know you're going to get a, a good return on the capital and then, and then get that $2 million. You'll have a note. You'll be on the balance sheet, probably sub to the bank. But maybe that maybe that makes a lot of sense. If somebody's looking to retire, especially if they're they're older in their seventies or, or eighties, even because uh, the buyers always ask, "Hey, does the seller want to roll equity?" Because we always want to explain at the onset when we're talking to the buyers, and we'll put a book together with all the information, and we want to be very clear with what the seller is looking to accomplish. Hey, appreciate you asking if he wants to roll some equity. He's eighty years old. This is estate planning. You know, we need all cash. He's happy to stick around and help with the transition, but we need to create cash as soon as possible. You need to communicate that. You can consider anything. Maybe someone decides, you know, I'll, I'll keep a little bit in some sort of an earnout or a note, but you want to be able to communicate that and craft and put together a deal that makes the most sense for the client. Of course, it has to make sense for the buyer as well. You know, in regards to payment terms too, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some 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 tricky things that can be put in there. I've seen, I've had friends and associates, hey, look at this deal and tell me what you think. And I've read some stuff that, you know, I hey, we're going to buy $10 million worth of equity, but we also get the first $10 million worth of profit. We get a preferred return. Um, and we're going to get a seven or 8% return on that money until you pay it back. Where's the thing? $10 million and 8%. That's a lot of money every year that you're going to pay before you're even looking at principal reduction. And there are just things that go in there. Now, sometimes you're you're probably almost certainly going to look at what's called a liquidation preference, which means in a future liquidity event that whoever the investor is will probably get made whole first before paying out other people. There's just a lot of interesting things in there. And I think that's why it's important that you get the right legal team, the right accounting team, and like someone like Bill that knows the landscape because your lawyers are going to look at legal terminology. Your accountant's going to look at the tax implications and then having someone that understands the structure of a lot of this stuff, because I mean, not all attorneys are startup exit savvy. Not like it can, they, they don't necessarily know a good deal or a bad deal. And, and I want to include that in a few closing remarks. As a quick reminder, today's episode of Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io. If you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, Fullscale can help. We have the people, the platform, and the processes to help you manage a team of experts. Go to Fullscale.io, just answer a couple questions, and we'll match you up with fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers, testers, and leaders. At Fullscale, we specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Um, I, you know, mentioning that, that's kind of what you do, right? Like you work only for the company that is seeking investment or acquisition. Correct. Why, on the way out, Bill, why is that so important? 
That, that's a great question. And a lot of times you see people say, well, I'm going to broker a deal. I'll put myself in the middle. I just want a good deal for the buyer and seller. I don't think you can. I think you've got a moral, ethical obligation to represent only one side or the other, because ultimately that is what's going yeah. to happen. You're going to favor one side or the other. And so I can only represent one side. So I'll represent the seller and someone else's the buyer will represent him or herself, or they'll, they'll have an advisor doing the negotiating. And that's fine because we're going to put together a deal that's going to make sense. I'm going to do everything I can to get the best deal for my client. It's up to the other side to come up with, uh, agree to the right deal for the buyers. And uh, same thing when I'm buying a company, I can't represent the seller. I have to put together the best deal, negotiate the best deal for my client, the buyer. Again, you want to be fair. You want to be honest and, and open and ethical when you're dealing with people. You don't want to deceive anybody, of course. But ultimately, the deal, the structure is up to the person who is negotiating that. You can't negotiate both sides. It just, just won't work. Well, and uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was an attorney, is famously quoted for saying, he who represents himself has a fool for a client. <laughs> yeah. um, just meaning like there's there's a level of perspective and expertise that even if you've done it before is still going to, it's going to blind you, you know, yeah. like yeah. You, you, yeah. you're too close to something to see it from multiple perspectives. Right. And, you know, another thing too is, is you know, as we kind of close this out, much like raising capital, the acquisition process is equally grueling. It doesn't happen fast. Um, if you get something that would close in 90 days, congratulations, you did it fast. Like that's a, a pretty quick transaction if it comes to bigger money. Um, you know, like a, 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 a individual to individual deal could happen this now. Like that could be as simple as writing some stuff down and, and passing out a check, but you need to prepare yourself for this. And I think why having other people involved and in representing you and working on your behalf is important is because remember, you still have another job to do, which is running your company. Absolutely. So, and, and, and the, the acquisition piece, this is something that a lot of people don't think about. I divide it into three very discrete uh, sections of work. Search, negotiate, finance. Let's take them in reverse. Finance mm -hmm. is actually the easiest. Plenty of money. If you've got a good company, you're going to have money in your balance sheet. You'll have access to a bank that will lend money. At least they used to lend money. Uh, you can tap a private equity firm. They will return your call all day long. They got nothing else to do but go to ACG events and eat shrimp cocktail and hope that somebody like me calls them. Uh, it's a tough job. So that's the, the finance. You can get money. Negotiating, that's the fun part. That's the best part of the job. The search part. That is something people overlook. It gets short shrift all the time. The PE firms hate it. They hire all these fancy MBA kids. And they think, great, I'm going to be a buyer for a PE firm. And they realize it's a miserable existence because they have to call curmudgeons like me and say, what do you got? Can you keep us in mind? And I know it's four o'clock in the afternoon because that's on Friday because that's when they start calling because they've called reluctance because it's a miserable job. That search component Finding a company, a good company for sale that meets your criteria as a buyer, one of the most difficult things that you will do in business. And the mistake that we think is, the, the mistake we make is we think it's the same thing as going to a grocery store. Okay, I need to get uh, some bananas and a can of soup, right? You're going to go pick whatever you want, right? You've got plenty of supply there at the store. In M&A, you know who's pushing the shopping cart? It's not the PE firm. It's not the corporate buyer. The business owner is pushing that cart down the aisle deciding which PE firm, which corporate buyer, which can of soup to pick off the shelf. Listen to that again, people. You're the one that's in control. 
Absolutely. Not the other way around. By the time you're about to get acquired, this is a way different vibe than when you were raising capital where you're up there feeling like a dancing puppet, you know, the other side of it. And you're right. That dynamic and that, that, uh, that communication and the tone and timbre of it changed dramatically. Yeah. So you're in control, Bill. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. For those of you that want to reach out to get some help or advice from Bill, go to billsnow.com. There's more information about that. You're pretty easy to find on LinkedIn too, if you just search Bill Snow. So thank you. Bill, I'm going to catch up with you down the road. Excellent. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This was great. Yep. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. Can't